As young women forge connections with each other across the world, they find solidarity with movements of resistance and social justice. We believe the stories these leaders share will provide you resources for advocacy and training because we believe that growing feminist leadership is one of the most powerful ways to effect change for this planet. I'm Chavi Sachdev and this is the fourth episode of Rise Up Leadership, the latest podcast from World YWCA. In each episode, I talk to young women leaders from many different nations about the concepts behind their activism. On this episode, we talk to three guests who have a lot of insight into a topic that is often used just to tick the boxes of face-saving rhetoric, but actually has the power to transform the places we work in. DEI, or Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. We start off by talking to Lara Rabala, who is a Kenya-based consultant helping organizations around the world do the work around DEI. Lara saw a definite upsurge in corporate interest in DEI after the Black Lives Matter protests resonated globally in 2020. A lot of the US-based organizations were having really intense conversations about what that meant in their context. Um, but then globally, then different organizations said, hey, what does this what does this look like for us? And I think what that did is what it it it's it's like it started out a a started up a conversation um, around what does this then mean for us when we start looking at issues of racism, when we start looking at it in our contexts in different countries. And that prompted a lot of organizations to say, hey, what are we really doing around racism and anti-racism? Are we taking a position on that? Um, what does that mean for us as an organization working globally? Over her years doing this work with various organizations, Lara has learned that conversations need to be slowed down to happen productively. Lara has also been supported by YWCAs in Asia-Pacific under the Rise Up initiative to dive deep into what diversity, inclusion and anti-racism work looks like. Many organizations said, you know, hey, they almost approached it like a tick box exercise that we need to get a DEI program in. We need to get an individual running this program to take it forward. And we realized, okay, that's that's not going to work because you're dealing with so many layers of this conversation and just that, that that personal aspect of it that you do need to give it some time for people to really get to understand who they are and what is at the core of this identity and how that plays out. You can't rush a process like this. You have to you have to give it time. Why? Because it is so personal that it causes people to have to think back to who they really are. It causes them to think about their identities. It causes them to think about their uh, their own communities or sub-communities. But it can also be quite a painful conversation for many because of different spaces of discrimination that they have encountered, um, either within their kind of wider social space or within the organizations itself. One of the processes that Lara uses in doing DEI work is getting people to understand the different identities they come into the space with. For instance, she points out, she herself is a person of mixed heritage. I have a, a Kenyan father, I have an American mother, but I was raised, I was raised in Kenya, but I was raised um, 
with different, two different, almost families, different sides of my culture. And I realized that even as I have these conversations and these dialogues, I have to know who I am and I have to understand what's at play in terms of those two different parts of my heritage coming in. And it was really amazing to watch people realize that their backgrounds, their heritage, how they identify culturally, um, uh, really has an impact on the way that they interact with others. Some people will say, hey, I look white on the outside, but I really feel connected to a different culture. And so people treat me one way, but I feel very different from um, from the stereotype that they might be creating. And they recognize that this also plays out in how they relate with their colleagues because they've made certain assumptions. They've made certain uh, generalizations about that behavior based on that. The next step in Lara's process involves getting people to think about what influences them. She asks them to define their circles of trust, the group of people whom they look to for advice and help. Then she asks them to analyze the identity composition of those circles. Who are the people that you typically go to when you need to discuss something important? And how similar are they to you? How different are they from you? in a way that will start to tell you about certain perspectives that you tend to have, but also what are some of the potential blind spots that you have that might affect the way that you then view the world and the way that you view others. And that was, again, very revealing for many people because then they realized that I might just be listening to voices like my own. I might be wearing the lenses of people uh, just like myself, what does that then mean for the way that I might see others or bring in other perspectives or understand other communities, understand other cultures, uh, understand other viewpoints? For example, if I find that most of the people that I speak to are uh, my same age group, what does that mean for younger perspectives, older perspectives? How do I draw them in? If most of the people that I go to are the same gender as I am, what does that mean for um, the, the perspective of the other gender? Lara wants to get people questioning the status quo and to start imagining what a better alternative would look like. It's a simple thing with profound results. But one very simple question that we use is, so what would good look like? And that starts to help people think about uh, each aspect. We say, hey, in diversity, um, when we're talking about diversity of, of people, of culture, of ideas, of, um, of expression, what does that look like in your context right now? And sometimes just staying with that one concept, um, helps people go a little bit deeper to understand, okay, if I look around the room, if I look at my leadership team, for instance, what diversity, what diversities do I see there? If I, um, if I don't see the type of diversity that I think would look good, what what can I define as what would look good? And it sounds very simple, but sometimes just stepping back and looking around at what you already have and then thinking about what you know what would you want to uh, achieve helps people to um, can I say take bite sized pieces of the solution or the improvement to what they're doing around diversity and inclusion. 
One of the challenges Lara sees in doing DEI work on a global scale is focusing on the local hierarchies and power imbalances that are very geographically specific. So, for instance, um, in Kenya, we had to shift the conversation to look at our different ethnic groups, um, our different language groups. Um, uh, I'm realizing that the conversations in Asia are heavily around um, religion or caste or, you know, again, sub sub ethnic groupings. Um, but also, if you look at the, the YWCA context, the aspect of age and intergenerational um, challenges or conversations, that is where the conversation, where they want the conversation to be, because that is where they see those um, those distinctions in groupings. And I think that has really been helpful to say, hey, this, the conversation around anti-racism has triggered a thinking um, for us, but we do need to be able to contextualize it and try to think about what is really, what are the push and pull factors within our own community, within our own team, within our own space that either allows some of us to feel included or excluded and what are those distinctions and how do we how do we um, address the aspects of marginalization there but then also look at it at that wider um, institutional level or systemic level what is it that is happening within our wider community within our wider society um, within our uh, leadership spaces that might be perpetuating some of these um, distinctions and marginalizations for certain communities or certain groups of people. Lara understands the frustration that marginalized groups often have with the tokenistic nature of corporate DEI efforts. The management, she's found, is usually resistant to big shifts. When you start elevating the conversation around diversity and inclusion, especially within an organization or an institution, you're actually talking about a shift in power. And that's very scary for many people. It threatens them. It challenges them. And if they've been, uh, they've been operating within a space of privilege, privilege either that they recognize or they don't even recognize, uh, the conversation on diversity challenges that. It says, hey, we need to shift uh, how power is shared and how power is allocated within this, within this space, whether it's around resources, whether it's around positions, um, whether it's around um, the way that we do things, it's a complete shift and it's very scary. And so for many organizations, that shift in power is, is a big one to bite. And they, and many of them don't have the, uh, the staying power to say, Hey, we're committing to this and we're going to go all the way, even if it means me as a leader in the organization losing my power or having to share it or having to give it up. Um, so that a different group that is more that has been marginalized can come into that space. And I think for me, that's a very big um, contributor to why this skepticism then comes up, because you actually don't see a shift in where the power goes. And with power comes resources. One of the hardest conversations to have in DEI work is with people who are privileged in ways because of their identity and getting them to understand the structural unfairness that advantages them. And um, I think for me, once you're able to recognize your privilege, 
uh, truly recognize it, not just be told that, by the way, you have privilege, but to recognize what does this, what that I do have privilege, and then ask myself, what does that privilege afford me? But what do I want to do with it? If you are feeling threatened by the the need to give away some of that power, then I think you need to do a little bit more introspection and ask yourself why. Because it means that what you were what you wanted to do or to achieve with that privilege may not necessarily be um, beneficial to anybody else but yourself. But if you are aspiring to something that is higher than yourself, that is beyond yourself, then it might be a little bit uncomfortable. You might lose your, your position. You might lose your access to certain resources. You might have fewer resources available to you because of that shared, that shared, um, power allocation. But if you're looking beyond that, then that really shouldn't be much of a, a challenge to you. One of the strengths that Laura brings to this difficult work is the courage to welcome conflict and to find a way to channel it into productive discussions. I wouldn't suppress conflict um, immediately. I would suppress violent conflict, yes, but I wouldn't suppress a conflict of, uh, you know, an exchange of opinions, of perspectives. Why? And that's why you see so much heat around conversations, around racism, around um, around equity, around inclusion, because it goes right to our core. Um, and so I'd say, let some of this come to the surface because we have suppressed it for so long. We behave very nice. We're very politically correct around each other. We're very um, tolerant uh, to the extent that we need to be tolerant in a workspace. But when we go out into our wider communities, when we go back into our homes, we deal with we deal with all of this and we deal with the effect of it. And so we're saying bring it. We need to find ways to bring it out and let there be a little bit of that. Um, let that tension kind of, you know, come through a little bit so that we're able to better understand what the issues are. Our next guest, Dr. Amjad Mohammed Salim, is originally from Sri Lanka and currently works with the International Federation of the Red Cross Red Crescent Societies in Geneva. And he's outspoken about his approach to DEI. I've been highly critical of the DEI movement, right? Because I think that that the, that the DEI movement has been used to effectively deflect conversations around anti-racism, decolonization. So, so people started talking about, oh, we need to really think about what this looks like, anti-racism. But then quickly, if you look at it quickly, people started hiring DEI consultants and so saying, oh, we, we need to do that and let's let's make sure that our um, our staff are much more well represented or whatever, which is which is one part of it, right? I'm not, I'm not denying that there is a need for that, but but ultimately the whole concept of the decolonization of, of, of knowledge or the decolonization of our work or even anti-racism is about power and privilege. And the, the, the problem at the moment is that we're not willing to kind of talk around power and privilege where, you know, so, so, you know, we're not willing to talk around changing our business models to ensure that, that, that those who are the most vulnerable, who actually know how to take care of themselves, they're given power in that and they're given opportunity. They, they have, they have the privilege to, to, to work on that. One of the hard truths that Amjad points out is that token diversity representation 
often leads to the most privileged of elites being given representation on behalf of the people who are actually marginalized. So, you know, yeah, great. We can have people of people of color or people of different, uh, you know, diverse identities in positions of power in various organizations. But if they're still perpetuating the same inequity, if they're still perpetuating uh, a narrative that the the West is is uh, the one with all the um, all the answers, and the West is the one with all the correct values and morals, and they're coming to countries and sort of saying that you need to do what we what we say, or we you need to kind of conform. You can have a conference in New York where you bring a young person from 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 Africa to to, to come and speak, but if that person is already going to the one of the best universities in the capital and and you know comes from a, a elite family it's not you know necessarily changing anything and and we know that <clears throat> accessibility to these places is limited for those who come from minority communities or come from from refugee communities and so they don't have access so already we already even within the DI space we you know that we are marginalizing people based on based on on their privilege these situations are why Amjad feels so strongly about intersectionality and about really digging into the various privileges and marginalizations that make up our identities. He observes that the way the global north has defined diversity is generally along a racial binary of black and white. Intersectionality, which is the practice of looking at the combined effects of various identities in one person, is something that Amjad doesn't think DEI efforts take into account enough. You're male. You're female. You're you're brown. You're white. You're you're you you know you're this religion, that religion. But you don't really get into what those what the lived experience of someone is. So you know, if you go to a European organization, they will they will ask them, well, what is the breakdown of your different ethnicities? They'll tell you, oh, we don't take that information because you know we are we're neutral. We, we we don't take race. But that 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 poses a problem because actually, what 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 you're then looking at is you're you're not able to fully grasp. You you don't have an idea of, of precisely that that lived experience of of the of the person. Beyond the theory of DEI, Amjad strongly feels that there are practical concerns which should drive organizations towards changing the power dynamics in their spaces, such as. Are we willing to go those extra miles to um, to accommodate? Uh, and be accommodated and be accessible to people. You know, do we, I mean, you know, in many places, for example, you know, depending on the country you come from, <laughs> visa processes are, are horrendous. Um, just to get a visa, visa, let alone a work permit. Um, are we willing to go through those? We we forget that, right? We forget. We call for meetings in Europe and not realizing that some certain people need visas to come in, and, and then you know, and then we. We end up sending invitation letters too late, or, or, or whatever. You know, we're not aware of those, of of those of those things. So, you're not able to understand when someone is celebrating Eid or Diwali, or you're not un, you're not able to un, you know you're not able to kind of think think about what this means. You know, you know when someone has to uh, has to fly home for 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 holidays, right? And and you know your for Christmas, and you, you kind of think, well, you know, yeah, I only get ten days Christmas leave, and you know it takes me about twenty hours to get home. You know, 
Amjad points out that one of the failures of global organizations is to actually account for the global diversity of the ways people need support, from families across borders to visa and passport privileges, from different religious needs to ways of communication. There are many ways in which people do not fit one global north human resources defined pattern. So that intersectionality, that multiple identity is not not recognized. And, and it's recognized that you just come your binary self in at work and then you go home and you're something else. I, it, it doesn't work like that, right? It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, you know, where if I wake up in the morning and suddenly, I don't know, you know, um, my, my heritage is Sri Lankan. So there, you know, <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's, there's some riot or there's a bomb attack in Sri Lanka. You, you know, you can't go into work. Sort of divorcing that, right? I mean, you, I mean, even though you know maybe family is not affected or whatever, but you're still affected. You're still affected by by that, and that level of, of appreciation and understanding is not necessarily there, right? Because I think from a from from the European or or Western or or a, uh, you know or Caucasian perspective, they they they're very that kind of nuclear family or or, or that kind of separation of private private and 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 public is 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 much more it's much more marked it can be a secular organization where you you expect people to come in and uh you don't you kind of separate personal and and, and private and, and and public but to be honest our lives are not like that our lives are so inter- intertwined Amjad holds non-profit socially progressive organizations to an even higher standard because, as he says, being an activist is part of everyone's identity just as much as the other labels are. Most people who are in the not-for-profit sector are there because they have not just passion, but faith that they are making a difference. We truly believe in the cause and the passion, right? We truly believe in what we're trying to do. So that's part of our identity. We're volunteering. We're 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 working for organizations like the Red Cross or YWCA, all of those, because we truly believe in the cause. And so that's as important to us as being Indian or Hindu or Christian or or Muslim uh, or male, female, you know, or, or father or or, or mother. So that's equally important to us. That's part of our passion. And so you can't then divorce that from the rest of our identities. And I think that sometimes we. We're forced to do that because we're trying to adapt a model which, which you know, which doesn't fully, fully work. So I, I, th- I think that there's a there is a strong hard look that we need to we need to take at ourselves and how, how we want to address what power and privilege comes from. It's not it's not enough just to come and get a seat at the table, but also ensure that you are providing opportunities or if if there's no room at the table get rid of the table sit on the floor our third speaker puja mandal who has been a ywca rise up leader from india shares amjad's passionate critiques of corporatized dei diversity equity inclusion is um is a subject as a subject on a on a, on a notebook and as a theory in a book is extremely um, inclusive and of course it it is trying to take um it's it's take, trying to take um, an approach um 
to structures that have been in in place for generations and um, for a millennia. Um, but a lot of the time when it is worked out into um, program structures and adopted by workplaces, companies, it is just another tool to um, achieve to look good on paper. And uh, there isn't a lot of effort put by companies, by organizations to take very strong steps and uh, say that, okay, this is absolutely non-negotiable, that this we we are um, we will not take we will not allow this in in uh, happen in my company or in my organization. Another limitation when we talk about when we were talking about DI is that um, people will talk about um, or um, show their solidarity and support towards a kind of discrimination until and unless it does not challenge their place of power and their place of privilege. So if I'm not as a program lead or as a program manager or, or as a director or anybody who's in a decision-making space is not comfortable with addressing their own privilege and power in, um, in terms of their place in the community, they will not bring a holistic idea or an approach to the table that is there. Puja does offer a pragmatic benefit to organizational DEI efforts. Brand value that aids in recruitment. But why uh, DEI as a structure exists is because if you know that DEI also has rankings in great place to work, which is a certification that you can, that organization can get, which says that, oh, it's a great place and it, it's, it's used to attract more talent and um, have more better employment and more brand value, what they say. And you need to start building the, um, by you, I mean companies and organizations are taking up these DI structures. They need to start working on uh, internal policies and build support systems uh, for employees, for um, grievance redressal mechanisms. Um, they should have uh, proper legal compliances. Um, uh, they should hold very, very regular sensitization workshops, but not like a monologue that we give, but be creative with it. Try to understand what are the different kind of privileges. Try to talk to people in larger groups. Unless and until you are not doing all of this, your DI structures will fail. And it's another, um, it's just another tool that you are using to build the, build the image of your organization or your company. Another critique Pooja has of the DEI framework is the tendency that professionals or academics doing the work have to use jargon that they assume everyone can understand. As she observes, just because someone has experienced oppression doesn't mean they will understand the theoretical language that's used to talk about it. And it's important to not exclude people from a conversation through the language used. She gives the example of her cousin who is hearing and speech impaired and how her family struggled with supporting him because of lack of access to tools like learning Indian Sign Language and disability-inclusive therapy. So as a family, 
who would have understood DEI would be would have tried when we were growing up. All of us would have been tried to be more inclusive of my brother and of his needs and uh, of um, of um, of what challenges he has. But um, or we would have all tried to learn ISL so that we are able to you know um, talk or uh, communicate with him better. But we didn't. And uh, then now when he, um, uh, and now I'm trying to improve myself, obviously, but when um, he has any kind of uh, breakdown or frustration and we blame, uh, and I've, I've seen my family blame it on him that he has a temper tantrum and he has these issues, but what did we do, we do to be inclusive? So I'm talking about reaching that corners of family systems and uh, communal communal living systems where um, uh, children are raised in communities that we need to reach till there to make understand what diversity what do we mean by diversity or equality or inclusion we cannot talk in forums and uh, in conference rooms and in um, and large platforms and believe that it will bring change Pooja's own work with the YWCA has taught her effective ways of incorporating diversity, equity and inclusion into everything that they do. One example she shares is when she was organizing the 31st National YWCA Youth Convention and she reached out to other youth who were not normally in the YWCA circles in India, including those from the deaf and hard of hearing communities. So many of... Um, uh... Uh, persons with uh, hearing disability and speech disability had come. Um, we brought in interpreters to make the session more inclusive. And um, so we were facing challenge, for example, as to we did not know how, um, uh, why would we need three interpreters or four interpreters, but we got to know that one interpreter cannot inter cannot sign for a very long time because it's extremely difficult then we uh, we were trying to develop a feedback form and uh, we were facing a challenge of how do we take feedback um, uh, because a lot of um, uh, uh, people uh, participants uh, with um, uh, who had um, um, hearing or speech disability they are not very good with uh, writing very long subjective paragraphs for feedback so what simply we did is we approached the uh, the partners from Deaf Women Collective to give us ideas to how can we correct ourselves. So the easiest way to make a safe space is if you do not know something, ask for help. And organizations can always reach out. There are so many collectives and people, individuals um, who are um, way more... Um, um, equipped with um, a lot of knowledge they will have specifically on diversity, equality, inclusion, even specific things like only diversity to reach out to other people who are other organizations, individuals, wh whoever has the capacity that they might have a better idea of the work that we want to do instead of working with the limited knowledge that we have in ourselves or in our teams or in our organization. Pooja has also been taking forward the World YWCA's Goal 2035 of reaching 100 million young girls and women, not leaving them behind 
and adapting that to an Indian context, reaching out specifically to marginalized communities. Because of our privilege, we some of the people in our society gain a lot more knowledge, information, resources, um, opportunities than a lot of the people who are left behind. So we are uh, trying again and again, we are trying to bring it into conversation as to how we have to reach out to communities that um, do not majorly have any kind of engagement or any kind of um, um, programs um, by either even so civil society we are moving ahead from the charity model of working to a more uh, uh, to a model that is more focused on building social responsibility that like a lot of the times even civil society uh, organizations um, the development sector leaves out communities because of course it is very difficult um, and it is a challenge to work in communities where there has been hasn't been any kind of uh, interventions and the rapport building which is uh, to build a bond with the community and to uh, um, and to make the effort that um, we have to acknowledge our privilege and how do we give it back to the communities that did not receive um, these resources just because they were a certain caste, class, um, gender, or any kind of minority, and they did not fit into the societal terms. Pooja has also found it useful to federate rather than work top-down. She points out how, in addition to the YWC of India, there are plenty of local associations like the YWC of Bombay or the YWC of Jabalpur. And reaching out to them and asking them how they can start adopting new communities which need attention expands the reach of their programs to well beyond the usual constituents. And how we can become more diverse by involving more and more groups which are not limited to only YWCA circles, but we are venturing out. We try to identify um, communities that, um, sorry, uh, NGOs or civil society or CBOs that are already established and already working in that area or with that community to understand um what are the um, common practices and beliefs, uh, belief systems that the community holds so that we are respectable of it and we do not make such mistakes. And uh, in one of our uh, locations, and we've had an experience that the, um, the organization that we were um, trying to approach, the community was not so much in support of uh, that um, other organization because they felt that they were disrespectful of the community. So, uh, we made sure that um, uh, we find out more about it, and we tried to, uh, we, and we tried, and we um, um, broke off. Did not break off, but we tried to move away from that organization because uh, we do do not want the community to believe that we will work with um, uh, an NGO or or CBO just because they have resources, um, um, but is disrespectful to the community. We would. Pooja's own story is an example of how the many layers of exclusion work in South Asian society. Neither of her parents have studied beyond high school, but her father was able to get a government job because of the affirmative action policy called reservation that the government of India has implemented for scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. 
This led to Pooja and her sister being the first people in their extended family to get higher education degrees. And I am grateful that I am at a place here where I get to uh, give opinions and give advice and become a young woman lead who is uh, uh, who is able to put this on the table that we need to work with more Dalit and tribal communities. And I can say it out loud that uh, look at me as an example that I, I was able to come out because somebody gave me an opportunity. Somebody gave my father an opportunity. And that changed the the trajectory of a whole family. And we, as young people face um, caste discrimination, a lot of the families still restrict, even if they were able to um, come out of one structure, there are like a hundred other structures that hold back Dalit communities, tribal communities, caste, uh, sorry, uh, religion, religious minority communities. And just with education or just with um, um, uh, um, a few reservations, it won't work. We have to have a systematic change where um, the reservation is not looked at something that is given to us, but it should be looked at something that is owed to these communities that face that much of casteism for thousands of years to like count. Puja is very clear that marginalized people who benefit from whatever affirmative action and DEI policies are in place should not ever be made to feel beholden for them. As she points out, one of the oppressions that people face is being belittled and mocked for not having the opportunities that those in power hoarded for themselves. Finding a way to take pride in one's accomplishments and feel strength and solidarity with one's community is one of the ways Pooja has learned to combat the discrimination she battles every day. I feel that a lot of um, young people from caste minorities um, end up doing is feel guilty about the caste they belong to. I just want to say to them that be proud and, and tell them that we in this world are suffering because of the caste majorities that are there and the social systems that apprehend us for who we are and how is that right and um, be proud and please don't try to take that guilt on yourself and because I feel that at that um, um, takes away so much of the brightness or the or, or the shine that we have as people and I'm still working on it. I'll not say that, oh, I've won the journey and I've changed myself and I've, I'm, I'm absolutely who I want to be. But I am on a healing path and um, I am um, taking control of my life. And I am very proud to say that I am a Dalit. From Pooja's story, it's very clear that diversity, equity and inclusion has tremendous transformative potential if it's invested in with true commitment and not just treated as a corporate buzzword. I have very strong opinions about um, diversity, equity, inclusion. And because, because as a person who's grown um, in a minority community uh, for a very long time, a lot of this conversation of inclusivity and, and diversity was a farce to me as well. And um, as and as when I'm more growing uh, I know there are structures which are difficult, but this might also uh, bring in a lot of change if 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 it's taken into the um, way it's supposed to and and believed to the core value of DEI.
that it has and um, there cannot be so what what we could do if we could strengthen um this belief in young women that their world is not that small their world is not limited to the 5 kilometer radius of their village or their town but there is so much more in the outside world that we can explore the ywca as an organization is committed to bringing the values of diversity equity and inclusion to every one of its programs and to digging deep into its own organizational structures to question and challenge the power hierarchies within itself it believes that young women's leadership is best supported by enabling social justice principles to guide community engagement The World Wide WCA is a global women's rights organization engaging millions of women, young women and girls around the world each year across cultures and beliefs to transform lives and the world for the better. With a presence in over 100 countries, our work is grassroots driven, grounded in local communities and rooted in the transformational power of women. We provide support and opportunities for women, young women and girls to become leaders and change makers. who not only protect their rights and impact their communities but inspire their peers to do the same we are focused on building a strong intergenerational network of women and young women leaders with programs led by and for women and young women in response to the unique needs they see in their communities our goal is that by 2035 100 million young women and girls transform power structures to create justice, gender equality, human dignity, freedom, a sustainable environment, and a world free from violence and war, leading a vital YWCA movement inclusive of all. This podcast series has been funded by the Australian government under the Rise Up Young Women's Leadership and Advocacy Initiative in the Asia Pacific region. You can find out more about our work on our website. Our handle is worldwide wca on all social media. A sonolog production.